Good evening, everybody. Uh, uh, welcome to How I Got Carbon for You. Um, uh, uh, I think we have a, uh, a very uh, uh, exciting um, panel here tonight. Um, I just wanted to um, uh, give you a little bit of context. Um, the debate cash in, carbon out um, tonight is um, hosted by the LSE Environmental Initiatives Network, the London Accord, and the LSE Center for Environmental Policy and Governance. Um, this is part of an ongoing uh, uh, series of public events and lectures that the um, LSE Environmental Initiative Network uh, has been organizing for a, a, a number of years. Um, and I'd like to take uh, this opportunity to thank uh, Henry Thorsby, who is the uh, uh, founder and uh, uh, main driving force behind the network and who, who has worked um, for at least the last 12 years on, on, on building the network and, and, and making it a, a great success. And, um, this is 10 years to the day that we had a uh, public lecture and debate in this very room on environmental risk management, um, which I think was an early attempt to look at the financial implications um, of climate change and of environmental issues. What we'll do today is um, to hear about, uh, initially, about a very exciting initiative um, that uh, Jan Peter and Michael Manelli have been leading. Uh, the London Accord um, has um, brought together a number of leading institutions in the city and uh, industrial firms to try and develop shared standards um, for environmental investing. Um, this is um, on the basis of a, of a I think, uh, extensive consultation um, uh, uh, in London. And um, we'll hear a short um, exposition of the work of London Accord and, and what its main aims are um, in one second. Um, we will then move on to our panel discussion today, which is carbon tax versus carbon trade. And we're very pleased to have a, an excellent panel uh, here to uh, discuss this. Um, starting on the pre-tax side, uh, Martin Wolf uh, uh, of the Financial Times, um, uh, and um, Rolf Martin, who I can't spot right now, but uh, who's there, uh, from the Center for Environmental uh, Economic Performance at the LSE. Um, on the pro-trade side, uh, we're very pleased to have uh, Abid Kamali from um, Head of uh, Carbon Trading for Merrill Lynch, as well as Neil Eckert, uh, uh, Chairman of the uh, European Climate Exchange, and I think uh, uh, one of the founders of, the, uh, uh, of the, the other big exchange in, in the Chicago Climate Exchange. So we're very pleased to, to welcome you all here today, um, and um, I'd like to hand over to Jan Peter initially to tell us a little bit about uh, the London Accord. London Accord is a, a unique project, as far as I'm aware, in the city of London. It is a collaborative research effort. It has brought together something like 15 to 16 different companies, institutions, and organizations to address questions of how does one invest and what factors should one take into account in investing in solutions to climate change. It's uh, an initiative sponsored by the City of London Corporation, BP, ZN, Gresham College, and Forum for the Future. And each of these sponsors brings its own set of networks, contacts, views, opinions, data, information, all of which has been instrumental in persuading in turn firms like Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, ABM Rowe, independent research houses like Ken Accord Adams and Objective Capital to each contribute a specific piece of research in a common framework. And one of the unique elements of the London Accord is that we're not paying anybody to do that research. Now, part of that is enlightened self-interest on the firms in question, 
this is research that they can use with their clients. But an element of it I find quite interesting because it shows how alive the issue of climate change and global warming is, even in some of the most hard-nosed business environments that you'll find anywhere in the world. People are prepared to do this research and contribute without there being a budget, without there being more payoff than me mentioning the names to an august audience like this and a number of other things we're planning later in the year. And it is because people believe that this is a very, very important issue. Now, London Accord is aimed at a number of different audiences, and I want to, in the interest of time, talk really only about two of them. One, the investors, and two, the policymakers. And you'll see in part of tonight's um, event why that link between the two is so important. For investors, we're aiming to provide a reference guide. If you're concerned about climate change and you hold an investment portfolio, what should you know about that issue? What should you know about the political sociology background of why this has become a big, important issue so quickly? What keeps it at that agenda, but also what might erode the support for climate change as an important political topic? What should you know about the positions of NGOs and wider sustainability issues if you're about to invest in, say, biofuels or solar energy or wind power or geothermal or wave, or any of the other myriads of renewables and clean energy sources that are the subject of the research papers that we're putting together. Whether you're a corporate decision maker or an institutional investor, whether you're a hedge fund or a pension fund, these issues matter. And they matter in setting a context for specific investments you can consider making. They also matter in putting together a portfolio that makes sense. Because investment more and more, as all of you, I'm sure, know, is about creating a portfolio that works under a range of different scenarios. And in this case, the scenarios are what policymakers do on business as usual or a much more aggressive mitigation scenario. That clearly matters. But it also matters how each and every one of these investments responds under different economic scenarios, what the technology drivers are, and what the policy drivers are under which these investments will do well or not so well. So we're trying to set out for investors the context. Why is this a big issue? Not so much the science, but the investment context, the investment environment, if you will. What the specific solutions look like, what you can invest in, what their characteristics are, what their attributes are, and how you might put together a portfolio that is robust under a variety of different scenarios. And that combined with things like legal implications, state of the policy environment, what incentives are there, what, do pl what plans do governments have, provides, as I said, a reference guide to investors. But the second audience are the policymakers, because in this market, more I think than in any other market where you can invest, the interaction between the policymakers and the potential solutions, the investments themselves, is critical. As we'll hear tonight, and as I want to leave you with in a second, a price for carbon is the critical component without which almost none of this, with this I mean investments in climate change solutions, will take off at the scale that the scientists tell us we need if we wish to avoid the potentially disastrous scenarios of global warming. But clearly, policymakers need to understand which ones of their initiatives will work and why they work. And therefore, one of the messages we wish to take out of the research reports in London Accord are messages to policymakers. These are the things that are important for investors. Now, I've mentioned the carbon price. It is clearly one of the ones 
that comes out loud and clear. But before I hand over to Michael, who's going to tell you a little bit about the link between London and Cork and tonight's debate, I want to mention one or two other of the sort of policy implications, because they sort of took me by surprise in beginning this project, and I thought it might be interesting to share them with you. One was the importance of rules like planning applications. As it turns out, a lot of companies, a lot of investors, have over the years been frustrated by the lack of being able to implement good ideas, potentially even economically viable ideas for alternative energy, for the lack of support from a planning process, and with that a legal environment, that simply isn't up to date. And it may sound relatively boring and arcane, but for a number of investors that has proved to be a real stumbling block. And it is therefore, I suspect, without wishing to front run the results of the research that is being commissioned, I suspect that will be one of the uh, entities, one of the points, one of the pointers for policymakers that will come out quite strongly. The second point is around technology. A lot of these initiatives are still, if you'll, unproven on a genuine industrial scale. Things like carbon capture and storage, um, elements of wave power, tidal, ocean energy, etc., are doable. They work. There are prototypes out there, but large industrial scale, in most cases, not yet proven. And yet, that is for investors one of the very, very tricky ones to pull off. How do you support a technology like that with where the technology has potentially five or ten year lead time? And one of the more interesting papers that I expect to have in the London Accord is a paper that will actually look very explicitly at the performance curves, the development curves of new technology. In other words, from startup, it's proven in the laboratory to competitive with the best of the technologies that is out there today, different technologies take different periods of time. Why is that so? Why is some technology mature, if you will, in two or three years? Why does another technology take 20 or 30? And importantly for investors, what is it about a technology that determines very fast or very slow? So that's an element there, and the policymaker point there is clearly one of which technologies need and deserve policy support and government support, and which ones can you leave to the private sector to develop. So those are some of the more interesting outputs that I suspect we'll have from London Accord. As I said before, the carbon price is probably the key, and I'm going to hand you over to Professor Minelli to talk a little bit about how that aspect, in particular of London Accord, relates to the debate that you're about to witness. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Good evening. It's, it's a delight to be here, particularly as an LSE alum. I think the last time I was here I was delivering a lecture on a computer systems, so uh, tonight's quite a change for me. Um, I'm very much looking forward to tonight's debate, and I wanted to pick up on a couple of points. Um, Jan Pater is, in my opinion, actually uh, far too modest. Uh, the London Accord that he has pulled together with the assistance of all of the various participants is arguably the largest piece of climate change research going on in the world today. Um, JP emphasized that no money has changed hands, but a reasonable estimate of the scale of this is it's of the order of about seven million pounds worth of research is being conducted and shared. And the ultimate result is going to be, were it in book terms, naturally in the modern um, carbon-loving era, uh, we certainly won't be issuing this on paper, um, but is in the order of several hundred pages of research, which will be made freely available to everybody and I would uh, encourage you to keep an eye out uh, on the 19th of December, uh, which is the official launch date when all of this will be made available to the public. So uh, 
uh, definitely uh, things will be coming um, from it. And in fact, that leads me on uh, to tonight's uh, lecture debate and why it's important to the London Accord. Jan Peter mentioned the importance of a price for carbon. Uh, clearly, a price for carbon is crucial. When we began the London Accord uh, two years ago, we assumed, uh, perhaps rather naively, that this was largely a settled debate. Uh, the SO2 example, sulfur dioxide in America, clearly made it fairly evident that cap-and-trade markets worked. Uh, the emerging success of the ETS and its establishment in Europe certainly removed the barrier that these things were too complicated to get going. And we just assumed that this was an obvious slam dunk. Uh, we would uh, be putting a price for carbon and assuming that we'd be taking this off of the markets. So you can imagine our surprise uh, when earlier this year, uh, at least from a reader's perspective, I felt that both The Economist and The Financial Times suddenly went over to the dark forces of government taxation. Uh, and I was somewhat perplexed and puzzled because I, I frankly didn't understand their arguments. And uh, I'm looking forward tonight to being educated by both sides because we hope that uh, what we learn and glean from tonight will find its way into what we term a cross paper, in other words, a paper about the policy implications of the research that's going on. And we hope to be able to present somewhat fairly uh, both sides of the argument um, and see where it goes. I hasten to add that it, it is certainly within city terms uh, not a debate at all. It's, it's assumed that obviously cap and trade works. And so in a funny sense, I've come out of the square mile tonight to figure out what everybody's talking about. Uh, and I'm looking very much forward to it, and we hope uh, that you will all contribute tonight as well uh, and help inform the London Accord about what is clearly, as Jan Peter points out, a key policy area that we really do need to get right. So I look forward to learning this evening. Over to you, Florian. Thank you very much, Michael. And uh, if I can perhaps ask you to make room for the panel, then um, um, I will try and to call them up in a second. Um, perhaps I can leave that to you, Penny. Just by way of uh, uh, another brief, and please take your seats, gentlemen. Um, before we get into the uh, uh, rough and tumble of the pro versus uh, 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 pro and cons of the carbon tax or, or, or trading, we're very um, happy tonight to be able to welcome also um, Sam Fankhauser, who's Managing Director for uh, Strategic Advice at IDA Carbon and the former Deputy Chief Economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Sam has um, been on uh, uh, most of the IPCC panels as well as the uh, Stern Review team and has also uh, worked for the Global Environmental Facility. Um, and Sam will provide a, an initial introduction to some of the key themes um, that are motivating people to think about carbon to cap and trade systems as opposed to carbon tax systems um, as um, alternative policy instruments. Very briefly, also, um, the LSE is currently um, developing a whole range of research efforts looking specifically at how we move from an agreement and an understanding of the natural uh, science um, uh, story about climate change into how we can build a broader consensus um, and refine some of the policy tools that will help us to move towards a, a low-carbon economy. And clearly, uh, Nick Stern's efforts via the review and his role now at the LSE um, uh, uh, as a professor um, of economics and government um, are very much focused at, at continuing that particular research agenda and it sits very squarely with of course the research tradition and expertise of the school. But in this, in this uh, context, Sam, if, if um, I can ask you to come up and perhaps explain to us why people are arguing about these two different approaches. Right. Thank you and uh, good evening. Um, yeah, I was asked to uh, motivate this debate between pro-tax and pro-trade uh, 
trading or pro-permit people. Um, I guess Florian knows that I'm Swiss and as such I would be unable to take sides between the two, so strictly being neutral about everything. Um, so I'm going to motivate this debate, or at least trying to, by, by being fairly basic and sort of start um, with a bit of theory, as it were, but then moving on to practicalities. I'm going to motivate the debate uh, under three headings, as it were. If you sort of think, how would I choose between taxes and permits or taxes and trades, there's sort of two basic ways in which you can argue. Uh, one is uh, their efficiency, how well they work, and the other is how feasible they are to implement, how politically feasible they are. So my first two headings will be the efficiency of these instruments and the political feasibility of these instruments. That's the sort of more theoretical or abstract bit. The third heading will be a bit more concrete, and I'm just going to tell you a few words as to how climate change policy, taxes versus permits, looks at the moment in the real world. So let's start with the first heading, economic efficiency. And the first thing to say there is that um, this debate is actually fairly advanced in the sense that we go straight to economic instruments. It isn't a debate between economic instruments versus standards. That sort of seems to be taken for granted, sort of the efficiency, both dynamic and static, of either taxes or permits is being taken for granted. And that's sort of, you know, quite a, a bold step in a sense, if you, if you know how policy works. Um, in my opinion, there actually is a, a little bit of a of space for standards and things like building codes and efficiency standards and things like that. But overall, I think it's sort of nice to be in an environment where you take certain basics for granted and sort of move straight to debate as to which economic instrument is better than the other. The second thing to say as a preliminary is that either ta both taxes and permits and trade is actually very well founded in economic theory. Taxes go back, of course, to the work of Arthur Pigou and the idea that you can internalize externalities um, by having a corrective tax. Um, the idea of, of tradable permits or, or emissions trading ultimately goes back to the, world, to the work of uh, Ronald Coase and, and his idea about property rights. Coase, of course, is uh, an alumni of the LSE. It's probably the only thing we have in common. Um, so that sort of is there's a very basic good economic theory on which you can build. And people soon found out that the two instruments are actually equivalent if you live in a world of certainty and everything is clear. Now, that doesn't help us very much because the real world isn't certain. So in a world of uncertainty, the two instruments are different. If you go for a tax, you basically know what it will cost. You know what your marginal tax rate is, but you don't know what the emission reductions you will be you get. So certainly about cost, uncertainty about quantity. If you go for a trade system, you set the quantity up front, so you're certain about that, but you don't know what it's going to cost. You don't know what the carbon price will be. So you're certainly about quantity, uncertainty about price. Which one of the two should you choose? There's a very influential paper by Marty Weitzman, which many of you will probably know, and what Marty says is that the answer depends on the relative slope of your damage cost curve, the, the impact of climate change in this case, versus the relative slope of the abatement cost curve. You sort of have to do a bit of math and then shift a few curves, but, but the result that you get is that if the damage, costs, damage curve is relatively flat, you want to go for a tax 
if the damage cost is relatively steep, you want to go for a permit system. The intuition behind it is if you think that you're sort of walking through a very flat area, um, hiking, you don't quite care where you walk, where you set your foot. If you're walking along an abyss, you're very careful where you set your foot. That's sort of the basic intuition if you don't want to shift the curves. Now, does that help us in the climate change debate? Unfortunately, it doesn't because nobody really knows or nobody's really agreed whether um, the marginal damage cost curve is flat or steep relative to the abatement cost curve. I spent a fair bit of my youth looking at these things, and what, what I would say is that the damage cost curve is initially flat, and then it becomes very steep. So you would initially want to tax, and then you move on to a permit system. Now, in the real world, that's obviously a very silly thing to recommend because of the institutional capital and the setup cost and everything like that. So that's not what you're going to do. So that's the first heading on economic efficiency. It doesn't really lead to a result. The second heading on what's politically feasible, thankfully, does lead to some sort of a result, and the result tends to be a cap-and-trade sort of recommendation. Uh, that's true both if you look at international agreements and domestic agreements on these things. When I, at the beginning of the Sturm review, I remember a, a meeting in the Treasury where this debate, tax versus permits, came up, and I sort of naively sort of suggested, well, you know, maybe there's something in tax just a coordinated tax system. And I soon found out that in the Treasury of all places, that's not something you should say. It's just there's no finance minister in the world who would agree to having his tax freedom set by Brussels or the UNFCCC or anybody else. So that's an internationally coordinated tax is basically a non-starter from a political feasibility point of view. How does it look domestically? Um, Governments are used to raise taxes, so presumably domestically it works. Um, but even there, it's easier to have a permit system. And the reason for that is you have something valuable. You have assets to give away. You have all those permits, emission reduction permits to give away. And so we can induce industry or bribe, if you want to use a more root term, industry into, into accepting these things. And that's pretty much what happened, actually, if you look at the EU emissions trading system, um, where most permits were given away for free, practically all of them actually. What that means if you look at the numbers, and Neil Eckert will probably have better numbers than that, what was given to the large utilities, to the Vattenfalls, RWEs, EONs of this world um, in terms of free permits was typically worth about a billion euros or plus minus. What they actually paid to buy extra compliance permits was about tenth of that, maybe a hundred million or so. So the value of what's being given away for free is pretty substantial, and obviously that helps you to, uh, to build um, you know, consensus to, to sort of create a feasible uh, system to, to build uh, consensus domestically or internationally. So that was the second heading. The third heading is a slightly more concrete. What has that all meant for the real world? Well, for the real world, it has meant that people actually have gone for cap and trade as opposed to carbon taxes. Um, you see cap and trade obviously in the EU, the ETS, the prominent examples. We see proposals in Canada. We see proposals in New Zealand, in Australia, in various US states at the US federal level, um, in Switzerland, in Norway. So cap and trade schemes are popping up pretty much everywhere. So the feasibility argument that I gave seems to work. 
What's interesting, though, is that people then don't go for pure cap-and-trade systems. They play around, around with the systems until they have some sort of hybrid that has a lot of features in it that are pretty close to a tax. Let me give you two examples. One is allocation. Um, once you start sort of going away from the free allocation of permits and start auctioning them off, um, you sort of the fiscal incidence, as it were, for industry starts to become pretty similar to the fiscal incidence of the tax. And that's what we see in the real world. There's a move from giving permits away for free to having them auctioned off. That's what the German finance or environment minister, for example, thinks the ETS should do. Various other EU ministers think the ETS should do. The U.S. Northeastern regional trade system will have 100% um, uh, auctioning right from the beginning. So there's a trend towards auctioning, which makes the cap-and-trade system a little bit more like a tax. The other example is safety valves. There's a bit of this, a large amount of discussion um, in various of those uh, proposals in the U.S., in Australia, um, the worry that what, ha what happens if prices go up too much and we build in a safety valve, sort of enough ceiling to make sure that that doesn't happen. And again, what that does, it sort of makes your cap-and-trade system look a little bit more like a tax and build more certainty into the price fluctuations. So that's basically what's happening in the real world. Because of political feasibility, people go for a cap-and-trade system for trading rather than taxes. But then they start building in features that sort of build hybrids that bring in some of the more desirable features of taxes uh, into the system at all. So that's basically my take as an introduction. There are a lot of questions that I haven't covered, like um, the transaction costs, the link to innovation, the link to existing policies like fuel taxes, etc., uh, the link to other regions. All those are issues that make the picture more complicated, but I'll leave that to our panel. Thank you very much. Thank you uh, very much, Sam, and um, thank you for maintaining your Swiss neutrality on this item. So, um, we would now like to move to, to our panel. Um, just again, just to explain what we're going to be doing, we'll hear um, short statements from each of our uh, panelists today, setting out the scene, um, uh, uh, and then we'll move on to a discussion amongst the panel, but we will um, definitely then also open up the discussion to Q&A, and uh, I would encourage you to participate um, in a lively manner. Um, just again to, to uh, remind you of our panel and the signs they are taking, and they have now mixed themselves and interspersed themselves here. Um, um, uh, Abid Kamali from uh, uh, Merrill Lynch um, heads the global trading, carbon trading operation for Merrill Lynch. Um, will argue in favour of tax. Rolf Martin at the, from the Centre for Economic Performance and, uh, and sorry, pro trade. I apologies. Um, the pro trade site. Rolf Martin. Um, who is a specialist on um, intra-firm analysis of, of innovation issues and, and comparing um, different policy instruments and in what way they impact on firms. Um, we'll take a pro-tax uh, uh, position. Uh, next to him, um, Neil Eckert, uh, um, and uh, as the head of the climate exchange, one might expect he will take a, a pro-trade position, and we'd perhaps be very interested to hear um, how practically uh, the, the carbon trading uh, proposition is, is evolving, and I think also the important question is how do we get serious private sector investment to participate, um, and perhaps how that is already working via carbon trading. And finally, um, Martin Wolf, who I'm sure you will all know from his regular column in the Financial Times, um, will, I, I assume, come out with strong views why uh, taxation um, will be 
the, the most effective way to, to, to both release innovation and to drive forward uh, the carbon mitigation agenda. So without much further ado, um, I would like uh, to ask David to come up, to step to the plate, and give us your uh, initial thoughts on this. Thanks very much for that introduction. And I must say thanks also to, uh, to Sam, because I always thought the Swiss were supposed to be neutral, but in classic Swiss fashion, I heard three arguments for trading. <laughs> um, on the one hand, we had you know, that trade was the right place to end up. Secondly, we heard that trade is politically feasible, the most politically feasible. And third, we heard that in the real world, trading is actually what happens. So I think we should declare three million and go home early. Um, but I think you know, the intention here is to kind of elongate this by getting into the details. Uh, and that's certainly what I intend to do in my five-minute slot. Um, I think there's innumerable arguments for trade. So I'm not going to get into the business of, of bashing taxes. I'll let, um, I'll let my colleague Neil... Uh, beat you into submission uh, as to why the blunt instrument is the wrong instrument. The arguments I'm going to use are, first of all, reductions. The EU ETS has been around for two years, uh, three years actually, this is the, almost the end of year three. We've seen by the estimates of MIT and the IEA, credible authoritative sources, an estimate of roughly 300 million tons of reductions. So the scheme provides a price signal the participants in the scheme react to those signals. We're seeing very strong correlation to all of the fundamentals one would expect, namely the price of fuels for the utilities, of course, the uh, weather patterns, whether it be uh, policy decisions. And, of course, we're seeing the ultimate price signal right now, which is that the price in the first phase of the EU emission trading scheme is close to zero. And so, of course, there's uh, not much additional abatement going on. But there's perfectly good reasons for that in the first phase, um, and I think Martin will probably try to pick on that in his argument, if I'm uh, allowed to look ahead. The reason is that you can't bank allowances from the first phase of the emission trading scheme into the Kyoto period, 2008 to 2012. So for those who've read in the Financial Times and The Economist that the first phase has been a failure, you need to look very carefully at the details. And I'm sure we can come back to that later, but believe you me, there are very valid reasons as to why the uh, price in this first phase is now close to zero. You should be looking at the, the price for phase two, which uh, price for phase two, which is roughly 23 to 24 euros a ton when I left the office today, and uh, providing a very strong signal for a robust carbon market as we get into phase two. Secondly, developing country action, and this is something that no tax will be able to uh, accomplish. We've seen a pipeline of carbon offset projects. These are Kyoto-compliant uh, offset projects of roughly 2.5 billion tons a year expected to be delivered uh, both into the emission trading scheme of the EU as well as bought by you know, Japanese utilities and uh, New Zealand uh, uh, and Norwegian and all of the other signatories to the uh, Kyoto Protocol. That's an astonishing amount of carbon emission reductions that simply wouldn't have happened but for the fact that there are uh, Trade, tra tradable instruments in existence in the Kyoto Protocol, and um, it's providing a complete rebuttal to the argument that you sometimes hear in the U.S. that the developing countries are doing nothing. Actually, the developing countries are engaged on emissions, and they are engaged by uh, delivering emission reductions in the form of the Clean Development Mechanism and the Joint Implementation Mechanism. Political practicality. Well, I think Sam has already... Uh, 
you know, laid out the, the, the very strong arguments for trade, but there's actually historical data to back up the point. The EU went into the Kyoto negotiations with a pro-tax type of agenda. In fact, I can tell you from being in Kyoto that the EU was rather muddled during the Kyoto negotiations. They didn't have a plan because they couldn't reach agreement on the tax, uh, the tax approach. They came out of it not knowing what tradable instruments are, but of course now they've seen them work and they've seen the, pol the political feasibility. They love them. They want them to continue. They want the EUETS to be extended to the rest of the world, and uh, long may that continue. New actors. So what is a new actor? Well, a new actor in this context is someone who participates in the trading market but actually doesn't have a compliance obligation. You've got utilities, you've got steel companies, you've got pulp and paper manufacturers, you've got Portuguese ceramics manufacturers, you've got Italian textile manufacturers. All of these participants are under the cap. But you've also got other participants in the scheme who bring liquidity. I stand here before you as an example of that. All of the banks have moved into the emission trading scheme. They play a very important role, but I'm not going to uh, beat my chest on that one too much. I think the other important thing is, apart from bringing liquidity, we bring other types of investors. A classic example, we have so much demand at uh, Merrill Lynch from our private wealth clients who want to have exposure to the carbon market, but they can't go into the market directly and buy EU allowances. So what do we do? We build structured emission products based on the fact that they want exposure to you know, December 2008 EU allowances or December 2009 certified emission reductions under the CDM. There are ways that we can get engaged by coming up with innovative products that bring liquidity, that bring other participants, and this I think is an important thing because it raises awareness about what's possible under the carbon market and it uh, shares the, the virtues of the market uh, approach. The fifth point, let's look at the data for how emission trading schemes have actually worked. And I've got some statistics here which I scribbled down. Sam mentioned the US SO2 trading scheme. The numbers that I saw on the US uh, SO2 trading scheme are quite astonishing. The estimates are that it accomplished a savings of $10 billion in its first, I think, uh, 10 years of uh, existence. That's $10 billion uh, as measured by the Oxford Review of Economic Policy, so another independent, credible source there. That's just in terms of capital costs. It leaves aside the recurring uh, cost savings that would uh, you know, come uh, in addition to that. It's a massive number, and I think it, it shows the cost efficiency of this type of approach. The, uh, another good example would be uh, BP uh, from putting in place its own internal emission trading scheme. The number that Sir John Brown used to quote was $650 million worth of other savings um, that came about because of a, a price signal being created from creating competition within BP's business units. That's an astonishing figure, and I'm sure there are going to be more examples like that. Let me give you a, uh, a final insight, which, I come, which comes from corporate motivation. You know, does a price signal really work when there's an emission trading scheme? I've given you kind of the you know, the market view, but let me give you an on-the-ground view from someone who used to, you know, work with uh, uh, some, you know, large firms and medium firms to help them with their strategies. The emission trading market has helped companies, has helped individuals within these companies climb what I call the green wall. This has moved the issue from being, you know, the remit of the corporate environmental health and safety department to 
the domain of the, the chief financial officer. And I think that's no mean feat. You have energy efficiency uh, managers in companies all across Europe who are now the new heroes because they have an increased mandate because companies don't want to see higher electricity costs which are being passed on by the utilities. They want to see action on implementing energy efficiency. This is a way that emission trading schemes can motivate all kinds of additional behavior that you won't see with just a blunt instrument like a tax. So I think I'll conclude it there because I know Neil has lots of additional arguments. Let me simply say that probably the most compelling reason overall on trading versus taxes from my perspective is that we are dealing with a quantity type of problem. The global atmosphere has a quantitative limit on how much it can absorb in terms of carbon. So what is the best way to solve a quantitative problem? To set quantitative limits. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Abid, for that very succinct and uh, clear exposition of the issues. Neil, would you like to come in right away to, to embolden the uh, trade case? We're not going 1-1 one, one, then 1-1. One, one. Some, some to Whichever. I thought it might be better to stay on one side and then move to the tax side. Right. That way to, to Good evening. Um, rather than sit here and extol the virtues of um, cap and trade and carbon, there are some pretty complex issues, um, which, some of which have been covered. Um, I really wanted to ask a few fundamental questions about tax versus trade. And we have tried to come across um, other areas where tax has been applied to try and solve social problems. And I've got a short list here. Um, tobacco is one, and I've been a smoker myself, and I promised myself that every time that 50p went onto a packet of cigarettes, I'd definitely, definitely cut back. And I was just around the front of the building a few minutes ago, and everyone's standing outside puffing away. So tax may not have provided price discovery for the damage that it does and the cost to the health service. Um, tobacco, likewise, you can put as much tax on alcohol, but you can still see some pretty gruesome sights on a sort of Friday night in, in certain towns. Um, I suppose petrol is another one. We have some of the most expensive petrol on the planet, and I haven't noticed driving around Great Britain at the moment that we have the finest road system on the planet, and I can't see how putting a tax on petrol has really helped solve that problem. Um, more recently, we were in discussion with a number of airlines um, saying, look, come on, before you get it done to you, why don't you come in on a voluntary basis, move ahead of the regulator? And they were starting to listen. They were thinking of putting a carbon charge into their tickets. And then our Chancellor, now Prime Minister, put an airport duty tax. And that airport duty, I think the people that that hit for the people that would save up for their holidays. I think it's eight pounds per passenger going through an airport. I don't think it stopped the frequent flyer. I haven't noticed a reduction in air travel. And one of the problems I have with taxation is we don't know where the money goes. It sort of disappears off. And at no stage does the government then turn around and say, and by the way, we've just collected a billion pounds of tax for airport and petrol, and we're going to apply it to wind farms in China or trying to stop people building coal-fired power stations in India. It just seems to disappear. 
And that thing was reinforced. We were invited, we often get invited to go and talk to various political parties about the merits of cap and trade. And a particular party, um, looking at my tide, you could work up the colour roughly, and they said, we have a great idea. We are going to apply a series of green taxes and then we're going to rebate the money back to the voters in the form of reduced VAT. So I thought, well, hang on. So you're taking the environment, you're taxing, you're using the environment to subsidise a rebate in taxes on luxury items. And yes, you definitely might win a few votes, but I don't see how that taxation correlates to a solving of the problem. I'm going back to the tobacco argument. The one thing that has affected my consumption of cigarettes is the ban. You know, that's action. If I look back, and sometimes people say, you know, what do you do? And I say, well, we run an exchange that trades carbon. And they say, well, golly, that's really obscure. Um, in fact, we turn over about $150 million a day of carbon based value. So there is an enormous amount of trade being done. But um, in, in terms of actually addressing the problem, we try and explain it by food. If you take food in World War II, this country had to feed itself. And so they didn't decide to tax food to stop people consuming it too much. They introduced food rationing and campaigns like Dig for Victory. And since time immemorial, if you put a quota on something, you will find there is a secondary market, or in, probably in World War II, an under-the-counter market, thinking back to Sergeant Walker in Dad's Army. But you will get trade, and people will be swapping their bacon vouchers for some cabbage vouchers if you're a vegetarian. But ever since people have been putting quotes on things, you do get trade. We saw it with um, milk quotas. And so the first thing is, if you really want to crack a problem, I don't think that tax is going to get that pricing discovery mechanism. People talk about tax giving pricing certainty. Well, I don't think that I've ever looked forward to a budget where I knew that the tax was going to be the same as the last budget. Politicians will tax as hard as they can. And they unfortunately regard the green side of the economy as a soft target. So, to my mind, tax does give me a problem and I will have a problem with auctioning because the same thing. Unless someone says we are going to charge all these people billions of dollars or euros for their permits and by the way the billions of dollars are going to be invested into pro uh, projects that reduce then I'm going to worry that the money raised through taxing carbon will be spent elsewhere. And this comes on to a fundamental point for me. Who is better at investing in reduction technology? Is it the state or is it private enterprise? Do we want entrepreneurs turning up? What we try and do, in very simple terms, if you just took a chimney that puts one million tonnes of CO2 in the sky and someone says, I can put a valve on that chimney and cut your emissions from one million to 900,000, you have a 100,000 tonne cut, which today trades at 23 euros a tonne. You can not only sell that 100,000 this year, but next year there'll be a bit less, you can sell that. You could forward sell it in today's system from 208 to 212. So you're going to generate yourself 2.3 million euros times 5, that's 10 million euros. And so long as the piece of kit 
that goes on the chimney is less than 10 million euros. You have financed physical reduction. Now, there is a credibility issue at the moment. There's no point in trying to escape it. The long-term equilibrium price of a carbon permit is the marginal cost of abatement. When a carbon permit is cheaper than abatement, you don't cut, you buy the permit. When it's more expensive, you buy technology. And at the moment, the price of European carbon is below abatement cost. We reckon abatement cost is 30 euros plus. So if you want to get real cutting domestically, then we need to see a higher price. Now, with interest rates, people are used to, if they see too much inflation, people rack up interest rates to, to dampen down the economy. At the moment, the system isn't as well developed as it could be, so people don't adjust the cut to drive the price of carbon to the abatement level. It is at sufficient levels, however, to generate enormous amounts of um, investment overseas into the clean development mechanism. And, and I think you mentioned two and a half billion tonnes. Um, well, two and a half billion tonnes, the carbon strip is usually about 30% of the equity in a project. So if you took two and a half billion, then the total equity in those clean technology projects would be three times that. And most of these projects are financed 75% by debt. So you basically take your two and a half billion tonnes at 15 euros and multiply that by 10, and that will lead you through to the total amount of pipeline investment in these projects. So an enormous amount of money is pouring into clean technology. And I have to say that I'm, I'm an optimist. I really think the human race is so creative that if we invest heavily enough and provide enough incentives for people to put new technology around the world, we will solve the problem quicker than maybe the pessimist is thinking now. Um, so that, I think, is sort of where, where the argument lies sort of with me. Tax, I just worry that the money is just going to disappear. I don't think tax gives price discovery, and people can muck around with tax as much as they can muck around with the price of a barrel of oil. We do live in a market that has enormous volatility in fundamental commodities. Our economy has boomed as oil has gone from 20 bucks to 80 bucks a barrel. So markets can digest volatility in interest rates, in oil, in all sorts of fundamental commodities, and live. So I'm quite happy with that, the free market mechanism, and I do just believe that private enterprise is better at investing its money than the state. And we've seen one or two social experiments over the last 50 years that probably bear that out. So that's where I sort of rest my case. Thank you very much, Neil, and uh, also Abby, to, for uh, 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 elucidating the uh, pro-trade position. I think uh, one thought, uh, just listening, of course, there's, there's two things we're trying to achieve. One is to um, uh, change people's behavior towards uh, 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 lesser consumption of energy, and we're also trying to allocate resources into innovation that will help people do that and that will help us drive us forward technologically in that area. Um, so perhaps these two instruments have different effect on those two different um, uh, agendas that we have. Um, I'd like to move straight on, and I think, Ralph, would you like to uh, come next and perhaps tell us about your view on Protop? Hi. Um, first of all, I should say I'm not necessarily sure I'm so pro-tax. You know, maybe I'm not uh, totally pro-trade, but maybe not totally pro-tax either. 
Um, and the other thing I want to say, just underlining Sam's comments, I think it's quite an evolved debate. Normally you have to debate, you know, should we have regulation or price instruments and discussing whether we should have this price instrument or that price instrument is already quite cool. Um, I, I just don't want to make a lot of words. Um, Sam said already a lot of things I wanted to say originally. Uh, and, but just one thing, I mean, uh, Neil pointed out that uh, you know, it all depends on, on how, how tight uh, targets are set. You know, and, and even though we had some trading uh, and you know, some studies find some reductions, I mean, my, my reading of, of all the experiments so far is basically that targets have been set to lax. Whenever you know, any kind of uh, pollution market has been introduced, or a carbon pollution market or a greenhouse gas pollution market, the price collapsed. You know? And um, then you know, people say, well, this is kind of learning, and you know, the market has to adjust to things, and after a while we, we will figure that out. But if it was only learning, I would expect to see you know, uh, errors on both sides, you know, having two lux markets sometimes and two strong markets the other times. It seems to me there's, there's, a, there's a fundamental problem that, that we always get two lux instruments. And, and why, why is that so? Um, I think it's um, because the way it works, it's, it's like, you know, you might not like politicians, Neil, and you might not like the taxes they impose, but it's also the same politicians that impose uh, the caps, you know. And um, when they're imposing the, the caps, what, what is happening these days is the, the, the people, what are the politicians worried about? You know, they're not worried about, you know, what you said, okay, we have an absolute target, and that's why we should have a, a, a target policy, because we mustn't, mustn't go over the target. We don't know exactly where the absolute overall target is. And anyways, we are dealing with four-year-old four-year uh, commitment periods, the, the amount of emissions you get in these four, four years are not really so important. What is important is all the emissions we have already polluted, all the emissions we will pollute in the future, not these four years. So the marginal, so, uh, the slope of your marginal benefit curve, uh, which Sam was talking about, is probably rather flat over all these scenarios. So what, what politicians are really worried about all the time is, what will this cost? You know, will we piss off too many uh, workers? Sorry. Um, will we... <laughs> Will we, will we uh, you know, will consumers get upset? Will, uh, will businesses get upset? Um, and, and then they're trying to get a target, which is not a target, you know. The, the scientists would say, you know, this is the absolute target you need to have to be, be beyond 550 parts per million or something like that. We get a target where the politicians guessed what probably the cost, the abatement cost is within companies, and then came to the conclusion, okay, this is not too much, you know. And I mean, if, if you ask today, I don't know, I don't know any politicians who are involved, but if you ask today politicians who are involved in the setting of the first round ETS targets, you probably know them better, maybe you were even involved, uh, what would they, you know, everybody, the price was initially, about, what was the price initially, 50 pounds, 50 euros per, per ton, right? So that's probably what everybody thought, okay, this is kind of acceptable, this is an acceptable cost, 50 euros, that's where we kind of start. But then it turned out, you know, that the, the targets were so lux that actually, you know, we get down to a price of almost zero, you know? And so I think there, there, what, what this tells me is that there's a willingness to accept 50 tons, 50 euro per ton of carbon, and, but then in the process where politicians try to figure out, you know, what is you now the, the, the cost curve? They probably will ask the businesses, what is your cost curve? And businesses say, oh, it's very expensive, you know. <laughs> and then they set some kind of uh, a target which is, which is way below what you could achieve at, at a reasonable cost. And I think this is, this is just sad, you know. If you're very, very worried about cost, then go, go for the, the taxing system where you have absolute uncertainty about cost. Even as a politician, you don't know what the abatement cost uh, uh, schedule is. 
And um, of course, I, you know, I see the, the, the political reality. Now we have the system and so on and so forth. And so uh, being simply realistic, what is probably uh, the most sensible scenario is that we, we end up with, uh, with a modified trading system where we have caps on the price, not only on the, on the, tr uh, on the, on the amount of missions, but also on the price. And if you, you know, that sort of would satisfy the kind of the concern of the politicians and maybe everybody else that maybe costs get out of hand. So if you have a price cap, you know, you can be more generous at setting tight, tight um, quotas for, for emissions. And, uh, and if you were too generous, you know, sometimes you, you, you have kind of an insurance um, uh, that things don't go too bad. Of course, if you introduce these things, the whole trading becomes more complex, especially if you're done in an international system where people don't agree about what the, the cap is. Everything gets very complicated. So, you know, on, on, on some, I, I wonder if in the end we, you know, I was telling to Sam earlier, maybe in the end we end up with, uh, you know, a hybrid trading system where we have caps, where we also have a floor on, 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 the, on, the, on the price, and they get ever narrower, and it's effectively a, a tax system. And, um, and then we call it hybrid trading system because people are allergic against tax, but you know, that's, that's fair enough. So. Thank you very much, Ralph, and uh, uh, thanks for, for that input. Um, Martin, will you come up and perhaps uh, uh, close this round with your furious defense of taxation? quite amused by this position uh, that I'm in. As people have pointed out, taxes and permits are equivalents, and it's therefore correspondingly relatively difficult to get an exciting debate given the nature of the uncertainties we have about the uncertainties. That's the point that was just made, and that makes it very difficult. But you want a debate, and so I'm going to give you a debate. And the my position is the proponents have put forward what I consider the, to be, in essence, a very well-structured scam. Because what there's, I'd like to remind you that these gentlemen are in business. I'm not in this business. To me, it's a matter not at all whether I have taxes or whether we have permits. But I was told that the city really is behind trading. Surprise! Uh, and I'm told that we believe in the free market, the free market in which governments set quotas and give them to companies who make billions of euros and pounds out of you. That's the free market we're talking about, right? That is the free market here. Very wealthy and successful traders, I congratulate you on your businesses, and very successful and even more profitable companies that have been given valuable quota rights at your expense. That's the system. Now, compared to that, tax is bad. Could you explain why? Okay. In addition, I would like to stress, they say we've already established a great system that working well, well, in Europe, arguable. But globally, if you are serious in looking at what we've achieved, we haven't actually achieved anything. And we haven't achieved anything because all the real difficulties in the whole dealing with the problem, including dealing with the problem 
of trading systems, namely who is going to own the quotas across the world and how are they going to be distributed, haven't begun to be confronted. And in my view, they are so enormous that the cap-and-trade system won't solve them. I'm not saying the tax system will solve it, because actually I think it's going to be hugely difficult for the tax system as well. But I think, and I'm going to try and display, argue that actually of the two almost impossible things to achieve, namely a genuine workable global structure that deals with this problem, a common tax regime, agreed, I agree, it would involve negotiation among governments on a common tax regime, not a single tax with revenue accruing to each government, is less unlikely than a genuinely agreed and effective cap-and-trade system that covers the entire globe. Now, there is one other um, crucial preliminary point that I want to make, and it's very important about the nature of the certainties or uncertainties. And the first is, it isn't true that if we get up to 500 parts per million of CO2 equivalent, the world is fine, and if we go to 551, we fall over an edge. It isn't like that. Certainly nobody knows it's like that. We, all we do know is that probably it gets worse as we go along, and how much worse we will find out more of as we go ahead. The science is at a very early stage. But what we do know from the science is that it really doesn't matter what happens in, every, in any given one, two, or three years. We don't need flow certainty this year, next year, or the year after. We need cumulative flow certainty over many years. A tax system which has a feedback obviously on what is happening in the market in terms of responding to incentives, by the way. That's how the market responds to incentives. The, you pay money and you respond to incentives. Then it works very similar, and that's ob similarly, obviously, to a quantity system, which adjusts in the light of the costs that emerge, as, of course, quite certainly any conceivable quantity system will. If it turns out that we start imposing really tight limits and the price goes through the roof, people are going to upchange the quantities again the difference is nothing like as big as, as people suggest I believe that uh, we are going to do better by creating a system which gives reasonable degrees of price certainty for business engaged in very long term investment decisions over long periods and I, by the way tax regimes are much less unstable in the implicit taxes that they impose than the carbon trading system has been. Just look at the, the movement over from day to day of these uh, prices. I agree taxes can't be certain over the next 10 or 15 years but I don't think the same applies to these quantity uh, equivalents, and the, we need something which gives relatively transparent prices to people making these decisions, and I believe that the tax system is the most effective way of giving that. And it has the additional merit, which is, I think, very, very large, that the revenue comes to us. Now, of course, it is true that the same can, on the second point, can be achieved, and this is where I now want to turn to the cap system, can be achieved by having uh, auction quotas, fully, completely auction quotas. Um, that raises a question which they haven't answered, which seems to me quite an important argument for the tax, is what do we do about households? Do each of us buy our own little quota? Are we all going to trade in our own quota? Surely, at least when we're dealing with households, we're going to want taxes. And if that's the case, because these quotas are not going to cover everything that affects us, and we do are very important consumers through pet, petrol consumption and so forth, it becomes much simpler to have a uniform price through the tax. 
that's an, another important, uh, important argument, it seems, for the tax system. But if you, you could trade the quotas for companies, yes, that's true. Uh, you could uh, then make the revenue go to the government, and that, uh, I think, would be much more satisfactory than the present situation. But it does remove one of the arguments that the proponents use, which is that the revenue accrues to companies, which for some reason they will use just to invest this windfall. They'll just use to invest in clean technology. Why? They'll use it for whatever they think is convenient. They might invest in that, but actually they might give it back to the shareholders. Who knows? There will be no requirements for this. But once you've got auctions, then of course that goes, that rent goes, so it ceases to be relevant. But think about the global problem, and that's really the last point I wanted to make on this. Let us suppose we actually wanted to create a cap-and-trade system to work for the globe. We then have to confront the question, which the tax finesses, I agree with you, it just finesses, it tried to finesse, well there will clearly have to be some distribution if we create the tax to encourage developing countries to participate, but under the tax, the revenue is, the tax is imposed by each country and it collects the revenue, end of story. Under the cap and trade system, politically, I think we would have to decide how the quotas across the globe will be allocated. And we will then get into the argument of what is a fair division of the right to pollute the globe. And so, Given the history, we created all the problem. Given the, distribution, the distributional differences now, it's quite clear that um, the normal negotiation of this kind will end up in the structure in which developing countries say we should own something roughly in line with our populations, and that generates enormous transfers across frontiers, which there is not the slightest chance our politicians will agree to. And that's why, in my view, a global cap-and-trade system that really works will never happen. Now, so given that, it seems to me that the actually the politically least unlikely outcome is that we agree on taxes, they're, they're, they are levied at national level, the revenue goes to the nation, the, the taxes create incentives for everybody, households and everybody else, and as a byproduct of that negotiation, there will be an explicit agreement on the revenue sharing of which some proportion, possibly quite substantial, will go to developing countries, but it wouldn't involve the enormous transfers they would otherwise get. So my view is that, apart from the fact that it's a great business to be in, it is not at all obvious that if you look at what the quantities are that we want to be certain about, if we look at what the, the nature of the uncertainties, if we look at the distributional problems, if we look at fairness within our countries and across the world, it is not at all obvious to me, to put it mildly, that cap and trade is optimal. Let me leave you with the final point. Every serious environmental economist I know of who studied really this question really seriously in the Dwyer's Richard Nordhouse, who is completely independent uh, in this, has, of course, like me, come out in favour of a tax. Thank you. Martin, thank you very much. Um, I think this uh, gives us uh, a, a lot of uh, ammunition to continue this debate. I'm sure Sam will have views on uh, economic, uh, um, uh, environmental econ economics and uh, its outputs. Um, what I'd like to do now um, is, is perhaps just pick up a couple of themes that Martin threw up, and I think the whole issue of equity, the whole issue of um, both uh, within our societies and across the globe is an interesting one. I think there's also a question of, you know, um, uh, uh, do you buy yourself out of your behavior change or the need to change behavior because you happen to have the funds to offset your carbons. We haven't touched upon the voluntary market, to what extent uh, that is effective or not, and whether uh, the type of individual training, how we ap approach households. I think uh, Martin raised that um, uh, 30, 40% of uh, 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 carbon 
uh, is produced via um, uh, buildings and housing, um, and the other, another 40% by via uh, transport. Um, at the moment, trading is really only addressing the large industrial uh, polluters. Um, so, in some sense, it may be that trading is uh, an effective uh, avenue for for dealing with those issues. But is it really going to help us in changing individual behavior, household behavior, um, and other things? So I think these are a few, few ideas I would like to throw in. Um, I will now, um, in a dictatorial manner, simply pick on uh, uh, panelists to come back with us and um, might perhaps start with, uh, in no order whatsoever, with Rolf to come back here on, on the issue of um, perhaps what is really effective in terms of driving technological innovation. Um, I know there's a lot of work that's gone in there. There are tax systems that have tried to engineer uh, 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 innovation and or productivity uh, changes. Um, any thoughts on that? And I would suggest the panelists just stay and use the, 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 the table microphones at this point. No, thanks for coming back on that point. It's actually something I should have mentioned before. Um, you know, as, as many have pointed out, uh, what, what trading does, it introduces volatility. You know, volatility which is interesting to speculate, interesting to make some profit, you know, if you, if you, if you predict it rightly. But uh, it's just in terms of the whole situation, it's unnecessary volatility, and it might really be quite uh, detrimental in the long run because this kind of volatility is not, is not good for investments in, in innovation. You know, uh, really long-run investments, which in the end will will really bring the costs down. You know, beyond the current period, and will bring the costs down also in places which are not even affected right now by um, by the uh, by any trading system like developing countries. So, to really give companies a strong incentive where they can sort of bank their money on, uh, you want to reduce volatility and and uh, some kind of tax system, or then a, a hybrid system where you have a on top of the price cap, you have a price floor so that companies know, okay, it really makes sense to invest in this carbon sequestration or something like that because I know the, uh, the carbon price will never fall beyond uh, 25 euros or something like that. Uh, I think this, this, is, this is absolute key. And, and, and again, you know, why, why do we need this kind of complicated hybrid system if we could just have a simple tax system and, 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 and have it just as well, you know? Thank you very much, Ralph. And I might like to ask Avit now to come in and uh, perhaps um, explain why, if, if, if we can't really get to individuals and others, why is there so much voluntary trading going on? Um, um, perhaps uh, come up with some other principled arguments on this, but uh, please. Yeah, if, if I can, if I can touch on this volatility issue, because I, I think sometimes the volatility issue is, is way overblown. You know, we've seen a learning phase in the EU emission trading scheme. That there are no Kyoto targets for 2005 to 2007. That begins in 2008. The European Commission has actually been very smart in the way they've structured this, um, this first phase. They knew that the member state uh, governments would not uh, bite the bullet, with a few exceptions. The UK actually did a, a pretty good job of its allocation plan. But they knew that it was going to be a, a lax system, but they they recognized that that was a necessary price, if I can use the word price in that context, um, to allow the system to commence. Now we're getting into the real meat of it. There are actually now hard data on verified emissions. We now know what companies really produce, not, as you were saying, uh, Rolf, and I agree with you, the kind of overblown estimates, projections of what industry's emissions were going to be and overblown estimates of what the costs were going to be. So we have the data. The way the market has evolved since uh, the second phase has, uh, has been traded forward is actually a much more calm, uh, I would say, uh, uh, 
set of uh, price signals. It's, it's traded between a fairly, night, uh, fairly tight band, Neil, correct me if I'm wrong, between around 15 and 25 euros a ton, inching you know, this way and that, recognizing that it's a much more robust set of data on which it's based and, and recognizing that, in fact, as the exchanges and the, and the, and the market evolves, we have tools like options, which uh, in this building I'm sure uh, you know, I don't need to say too much more about, but call options and put options are ways that companies are now hedging um, the profits that they're able to, uh, you know, to, to lock in to get that price certainty. They, know, uh, they don't worry so much about whether the price is going to go you know, hither or thither. They, uh, you know, they use options to kind of control uh, the cash flow. So I think volatility is overblown, and I think you know, the market has ways of, of dealing with it. Okay, um, I think another um, point that uh, uh, will be useful to ask, and perhaps uh, Martin, you would like to comment on that. I mean, the, the, you know, there are countries who have tried to pursue win-win strategies in terms of, you know, exhausting the possibilities where we can um, change behavior without doing too much economic damage. Um, I mean, is tax really going to provide the incentive and, the, and the, the incentive structures for those investors that we need to come in to, to essentially drive the technological innovation, which is going to be the basis of our ability to, to, to both mitigate our carbon cons uh, consumption and outputs, but possibly also uh, technologies that will help us um, adapting to the inevitable consequences of climate change? I'm rather puzzled, I have to say, by the assumption seems to be very strange, have almost no economic foundation, that in some way quantitative limits make us behave entirely differently from the, from the way in which equivalent prices would. And somebody's going to have to explain the economics of that to me because it's pretty weird. Uh, in the case of tobacco addiction, well, maybe this is true. Even if you imposed an infinite tax, you would somehow find some way of getting hold of it by abandoning, doesn't it? Because, of course, that is an infinite tax. Uh, the um, now, I can clear that if we impose an import infinite tax on carbon, uh, we would stop emitting carbon. We would stop doing everything else too. Uh, it's pretty clear that we could find a price mechanism which is equivalent because it seems to me what they're really saying is that our taxes aren't going to be high enough. That's really what they, it seems to me that amounts to saying, well, if our taxes aren't going to be high enough, then we'll just have to have them higher. Uh, the auction price will show that in exactly the same way. We'll just have very high auction prices um, in the trading. So it doesn't seem to me these are fundamentally different. As to the extent to which price signals affect people's behavior, well, obviously we are agreeing on that. Price signals are going to affect people's behavior. That's, traders say that because that's what they're generating, and that's what we're saying. But also, it's actually, it is in line with what common sense. Uh, the United States roughly emits twice as much, uses twice as much carbon fuel per head, fossil fuel per head overall as we do, and emits about twice as much per head as we do. And is that related to the price of energy in the United States? Well, of course it is. So, uh, yes, we have a completely different vehicle fleet because our petrol is so much more expensive. Now, the argument, it seems to me, that is being made is it should be much more expensive still. Uh, I don't have any disagreement with that. It may well be that the tax we need to shift the whole world's consumption of CO2 back to the sort of levels that the, that the scientists are talking about, which is a 60 to 80 percent cut. Uh, in emissions from present levels is going to be very, very high. Well, the price equivalent of the QR, the quantitative restriction is also going to be very, very high. There is going to be no relevant difference in this respect. And finally, 
They ha- I do think we should push the household point. I do want to understand how a cap-and-trade system is going to cover all activities in all countries. Okay, in practice. Um, thank you very much, Mark. Um, Neil, do you want to come in? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm very worried about the calibre of some of the opponents here. But, um, in terms of... Um, we expect to see a plurilateral system. You cannot... You have different countries with different economies coming off different baselines, and a lot of people like us have been emitting for a very long time since our Industrial Revolution, and you just cannot impose a rule that says other developing economies have got to stop growing or consuming. So we expect... What we do see is, at a high level, global leaders and scientists using figures such as 60 70% by 2050. People are starting to buy into a target. As Martin said, the science is hardly proven. Um, my personal view is that's a theory of gambler's ruin. There's enough evidence to suggest we don't want to take the bet and do nothing. But in terms of there has to be a soft landing for economies such as India and China. America is coming. We think there will be American legislation in 2009. and We don't think there's a presidential candidate who take Obama, Clinton, McCain, and there's legislation pending in that place now. And we think that legislation is 2009, and we think America will turn up, and it will trade. And it will be a big system, as Martin's observed, 7.5 billion versus 5 in the whole of the EU. And America is the heart of capitalism. We think cap and trade. They were the guys that pushed it, and they love the fact that they've stopped acid rain by using cap and trade. What I do take is the point that sulfur is a regional gas carbon is a global gas, so you have a different set of problems. But I think we will have a plurilateral system if we get India and China to engage, and I think America will exert a lot of power, uh, sorry, a lot of pressure on those economies to start to come into a system. Then that's almost half the world's emissions. China is due to overtake America very shortly. I don't think we'll ever get the whole planet agreeing to a system. But I think if we look at great reforms, I mean, if we'd all waited for the entire planet to get together and abolish slavery, we'd still have slavery today across the entire planet. There was thought leadership amongst a few of the most developed nations that started the process. So, for me, what I still haven't heard is when all these tax revenues have been collected. And I don't, actually, I don't really hate politicians, and I don't actually mind paying a certain amount of tax. I, I value certain aspects of it. But no one's told me why governments are going to be better at investing I think the solution to this problem is we are going to see fantastic technologies. We are starting to see technologies. The, the, the investment is pouring. AIM in, in the London Stock Exchange is the centre for raising capital for alternative um, forms of technology. That's partly due to Sarbanes-Oxley, partly due to George Bush, but there are lots of companies, and there are wind companies, solar companies, companies with hydrogen fuel cells. Innovation and technology and man's ability to adapt and also man's entrepreneurial flair, I think, will win out. And I'd rather back that than the ability of governments and a state national solution to solve the issue. And that's where I... There was one other point, which is households. If we sort out the utilities and the oil companies and those sorts of establishments, then the carbon is either taxed or capped and traded before... It arrives in my car, Martin's car, or anybody else. I think the thought of each house having its own carbon 
return. I mean, that's almost getting to a system that is as complex as tax. And what we do know about tax is there's a whole industry based on tax avoidance, and it's a real massively complex, vast industry. So what I'm hoping it can, you can cut carbon at the wholesale distribution level, not at the retail consumption level. Thank you, Act. Uh, I'll take one more panel comment, and then I think it's time to open up to the audience. But, um, Abby, it's uh, carbon trading, uh, uh, climate change, a market failure to be addressed by greedy bankers and commodities traders? Well, you know, we're simply putting, uh, we're simply putting the, the price signal to work. You know, there are – I've talked about some of the arguments um, where I think the, the investment banking community is adding value. You know, that is bringing new participants to market. Um, there are lots of companies who – are you know, unable to, to deal directly with, uh, with counterparties, so they need to go via intermediaries. There are additional liquidity providers that we can bring in. We can bring in, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, you know, the uh, individual uh, investors who wish to have access to, to carbon as a commodity. I think there are lots of, lots of uh, valid uh, purposes that um, some of these intermediaries play. If I, if I can just also comment on a couple of other comments that were raised in the previous round. It's a myth to say that cap and trade only covers a small section of the economy. The EU emission trading scheme, let's get the number right, covers 50% of European emissions. That's a very sizable amount, and, I'm, and I don't think Neil would certainly uh, you know, advocate this either. We're not suggesting that it should be 100% of European emissions. Let's go for the easy wins. It's the, you know, the big sources, the large uh, polluters, where, as, as Neil has already mentioned, some of the costs can be passed on to the consumers. And that's exactly what's happening. That's why, you're, unfortunately, all of our electricity bills are going up. It's because of carbon costs being passed on. And that's exactly how you share the, uh, you know, you sh you share the burden. The other point is, just on the way over here, I was reading the, the Lieberman-Warner bill, which is being tabled in the Senate today, the, U the U.S. Senate. It covers 70% of U.S. emissions via a proposed cap-and-trade scheme, 70%. And how does it address volatility? Well, it's, it's learned from the, U, the, the EU scheme. It has banking forward from year to year. It's got rid of a price cap, so it's not actually a carbon tax in disguise. Uh, in the early incarnation of the bill, it had a $12 per ton uh, price cap, which essentially is a, a tax. And the other smart thing is that it allows the uh, carbon offset provision to be increased or decreased if there is a spike in the price. It's set at a 15% uh, offset limit, and uh, an independent arbitrator for the scheme will decide whether that limit should be increased if, if there is a price spike. So I think it's, it's learning about how you control uh, price volatility, and uh, you know, I think that that bill will uh, come in uh, around 2009. Thank you, Abit. And Martin, you wanted to come in. And just to explain, I wanted to not to stop the panel, but I wanted to collect a few I questions. I understand. Please go. Uh, it's just so important. <coughs> One, covering 100% is better than 50%. Two, do not confuse two issues, scarcity rent and price signals. If you, it, if you auction the quotas, the price signals work just like the taxes and the revenue goes to the government. So Neil's position only makes sense if the quota rent goes to the companies and for some reason that I don't understand, they use it for this purpose rather than any of the other purposes they might use them for. I think these are very questionable assumptions in both cases. Auctioning just creates, otherwise the rent goes back to the government, as it should, of course, 
but it'll be just be a bit more volatile doesn't, because the price is more volatile. It doesn't seem to me very useful. So the differences between us are much smaller than you suppose in this respect, and the assumption that this is the free market option, quotas, and the tax is not a free market option is really weird. Thank you very much, Martin. I thought it might be a good moment to, to find out whether there are some specific questions or, or, or that uh, some of you might have to the panel. What I suggest we do is um, I collect a few and then let the panel decide. The gentleman there has the hand up first. Yes, I think. We'll collect a few if, if, if questions. Please, the lady over there, and then I saw someone over there. Okay, please, yeah. Um, talking about carbon emissions and the taxing of behaviour, um, we already know that this is going to take on a role already because of Thank you very much. I think that's a very good question. Um, I'm going to try and work in the order that I've seen the people. So for the lady back there, and then I've got you two for the next one. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's good. We have questions of flexibility, equity, and market uh, uh, um, access. Um, I, I, I will hold the people and let the panel um, respond, but I have remembered the people who have done Please. Would one of you like to respond to or start off with? Martin, please. Um, the flexibility question was not addressed to us, so I won't. Um, it is clear, and I was, I was explicit about it, but it could be handled through cap and trade. Let me be clear. It depends on how you structure the quotas and what you do, how, whether you auction them and how you use the revenue. But it is absolutely clear that one way or another, technology developed in developed countries has to be transferred to developing countries in some way. We have a big interest in that. And we have to handle, help developing countries cope with the problem that is going to happen anyway because, as you rightly pointed out, we're going to be adapting. Um, and a way has to be found that. I don't regard these as decisive differences between the systems, but I generally think anything to generate revenue is going to be helpful here. Um, markets in innovation, well, it's going to be a mixture, but some of the innovations here are very long-term, very long-term, and will involve fundamental technological changes. There are no examples, I'm sorry, in history in which government or university-based research with which governments invest have not played a fundamental role in those sorts of innovations. I can give you so many examples. Think of the Internet. So, of course, government is going to be involved in this, the idea that the, the, the private sector all on its own will invent, invent, innovate, and do all the technologies we need because we are starting so far behind in this area. It's just wrong. Thank you. Um, Abit, would you like to come in quickly on that? Yeah, just uh, addressing some of these points. I mean, on the flexibility issue, I think um, the answer lies in what you do with the auctioning revenue. 
So, you know, if you move to an auctioning system as, as um, is anticipated, uh, and by the way, the U.S. bill I read this evening has 18% one eight in the first year, that's, that's a significant amount of revenue that can be used for, um, for whatever purpose is deemed appropriate by the government. The second point about the market mechanisms and their ability to deal with uh, the physical impacts of climate change, I, I mean, I'm, I fully understand that um, we are going to see uh, significant impacts, and I think the mechanisms already begin to take that into account. There is actually a, um, a 2% levy on every carbon credit that's created. I think that's the right number, Neil. 2% on every credit that's created under the clean development mechanism. It's not a significant amount of money initially, but it's going towards something called an adaptation fund, which is being managed by the World Bank. So that's a, a classic example of, of how this can, um, uh, can start. There's no reason why that percentage, by the way, can't increase as um, you know, the uh, individuals managing the fund uh, prove that they can uh, contribute it towards uh, useful purposes. Uh, on your point about um, energy efficiency and, and the barriers therein, uh, I agree with you that um, you know, the, the price signal hasn't been so effective, despite what I said earlier about the managers of energy efficiency um, kind of uh, receiving new budget in the last couple of years, thanks largely because of the cap-and-trade scheme. And I would agree that with some of the earlier comments. In fact, I think Sam mentioned this. Standards are probably the best way to deal with this. You know, let's get um, standards in and um, let's, let's deal with some of the, the market barriers that way. Thank you. Unless either of you feel an urgent need to come in, I'll get some more questions. Okay. Then I think there was the gentleman over there, left over. There was a gentleman there, and then that gentleman, that gentleman, and then we'll do another round. I've got you. Please, if you want to. Okay, we're going to have to move a little bit quicker because we've run out of other time, so I'm going to take um, a few more questions and then a quick response, and then Sam will do a quick summing up. Please, sir. Thank you. Um, the gentleman here and the gentleman there, and then please go.
A very good question. Quickly, banking refers to taking over credits from one, one uh, phase of the training scheme to the next. I'm really sorry. I think we need to just quickly um, allow the panel to respond. I think Martin um, uh, needs, to, needs to leave us in a second. Um, you, can give me, you can give me ten, I mean, I was told it would end at eight. I've got to, I, can, I apologize for this interruption. I can certainly stay till ten past, but I think the absolute latest because that's unfortunately one of, well, I have a dinner engagement. I do apologize. Martin, thank you so much. Um, Anyone from the panel who wants to? I think there were some, a number of interesting questions uh, embedded in this. I think, Neil, you, you indicated you wanted to reply. Yeah, um, I, th I think one of the issues that I was going to pick up on was you want your money, you want it now. One of the issues of a trading market is you can forward sell the reduction over currently five years if the governments and bodies get their acting gear. Hopefully, we will have a, a forward market where you could monetize reduction over 10, 15 years. The idea is you'll be able to finance technology. And this is what has happened. Now, I, if you take the US example, they have a 30-year forward market. The price of sulfur dioxide went up to $1,500 per tonne. It was killing the utilities for a short space of time, and they all phoned up GE and Floor Corporation, and they bought scrubbers. Bang. And they forward sold their sulfur allowances over a long period of time, and they financed that technology. And... It's, it's not right to say there's already 40 billion, according to Sir Nicholas Stern, and we reckon actually it's a lot more than that, going into overseas technologies and clean power. There is a two-year waiting list for wind turbines. The amount of money that is pouring into clean energy as a result of one tiny little scheme. The EU ETS only touches 5% of the world's emissions. There's 42 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas equivalent going into the sky. There's only 2.2 in a system, and it's already triggered enormous overseas investment. The other point I'd make, I, I get technology transfer, and I get the need that we are the consumers that have done a lot of the damage, and overseas people need to benefit. But I think when you build a clean power plant in China or India, and you create employment, and you get electricity to places, which is a very important thing in the third world, you're doing something and you're creating a sustainable business model. I have watched overseas aid, and I think there are some pretty embarrassing examples of our taxes being put into overseas aid programs, especially in places like Africa. So I'm not sure. I mean, I, I just don't get this thing that the governments are the only people that can finance technology and, and progress. My version of the last 50 years of history is where the governments have controlled everything their economies fell apart, and where capitalism prevailed, we actually enjoyed wealth creation. And that's, it's pretty far removed from the subject of carbon, but I just don't see why governments have a monopoly on good investment. Rolf, uh, I know you have a background in a statist country, so you want to respond to that? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I'm going with Martin, said I, it's, it's, uh, it's wrong to say the tax is a some kind we're going to get both, by the way. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. We're, we're going to get both. And by the way, we need everything. Yeah. End of debate. <laughs> End of debate. <laughs> Martin, please finish. Uh, Ralph, sorry. Uh, you wanted to um, yeah, so... Um, but what was the question? No, no, I lost the track. Prices, the prices will affect innovation, I think, is the track you were on. Taxes and prices affecting innovation. Yeah. So I'm not <laughs> but, Martin, would you like to come in? And, uh, well, just on, I think there, 
It is repeating the remark made by this gentleman, but I think there's a certain confusion. I, I'm perhaps I certainly do not believe that governments will do all the investment or the innovation. It's clearly wrong. The tax, obviously, I presume, obviously I, this hasn't been made clear enough. The tax will create a set of incentives because emitting carbon will be expensive and consuming carbon will be expensive. And therefore, companies and individuals will do what makes sense for them to reduce those emissions. And that will include investment and innovation and just consuming less. And that will be a respond to the response to the tax. And they will respond in exactly the same way, but in a slightly different mechanism, if the, tr the trading price is high. That will also be true. The only difference between these two, leaving aside the volatility question, which can be handled if the markets are long enough to some degree, is where the rent goes. I am arguing that if the rent goes to the companies, which certainly increases their wealth, it is not unnecessary at all. It will go into innovation. It may go anywhere. Um, so the signal is the price. The, there will have to also be policies that affect innovation, some of which will be done by governments directly, and some may be done through in, incentivizing innovation as they do already through R&D tax credits for all the rest of it. But the basic mechanisms are not different. Can I just comment on one other very important question? Because it is, in a sense, a, the core question. It cannot be put to one side. Um, because already the developing countries are responsible in aggregate, I think, for close to half the emissions. Somebody can correct me. And they're going to do, account for all the growth. So what happens there is crucial. I think the U.S. is big, a big issue, but it's almost a side issue. Interesting. I mean, it's, not a, it's a big side issue. Uh, it's a big side issue, but the question is what happens in the developing countries. The logic of cap and trade with the shares hand, handed out to each individual human being, as it were, on a notional per head basis, seems to me absolutely beautiful. It, it solves all sorts of nice problems of equity, and we pay implicitly massively for the pollution we've created and are continuing to create on a, on a, on a flow basis. I just really just don't think we could ever get that agreed because the transfers across from developed to developing countries end up in the trillions. Now, it's very nice, but it's not going to happen. So we have to, to try to find some other way of getting them into the systems. But getting them into the system by simply saying, we're going to do this, and China and India, if you don't, which is the suggestion here, if you don't agree to some cap much lower per head than our caps, we're going to bomb you, quote unquote, um, <laughs> as it were, or stop your trade or force you, that's not going to get anywhere either. We're going to have to find a mechanism in which people share the problem and sort of share the pain. I actually think agreeing to a common tax is a less unlikely way of getting the Chinese and Indians into these systems than any alternative I can see. That works. And if it doesn't work there, it won't work. End of story. Well, thank you very much. Um, Abit, you have the honor of having the last word of the panel before I ask Sam to, to, to sum up and tell us what we've learned tonight. Nothing. Okay, then let me just say, <laughs> it's a dangerous position to have, but let me just say that I think the way the systems are going to evolve is towards a cap-and-trade scheme with essentially a price floor. And I think what we'll see is a price floor uh, being introduced in the form of a reserve price in the auctions. So we'll see a move to ever higher proportions of auctions, 18% in the US, moving, by the way, to um, I think 60% by around 2030, and we'll see uh, a price floor that will ensure that you get the, the price continuity that uh, industry needs for uh, certainty in, in longer-term investment. 
Thank you very much, Shem. Sam, please, one second before you come over. I just wanted to uh, uh, use this moment to, to thank the people who actually really put this event together. I, I've kind of been standing here and, and uh, chairing, but had very little to do with the actual organization. And Joe Carton has worked very hard on putting this all together, so thank you very much for all of that. And um, also... And also thank you to Henry and to Jan Peter and Michael, obviously, who, who've been co-hosting. Um, and then just before, also, uh, I'll let Sam really have a last word. There is a reception afterwards. It's at the top floor of the George V pub, which is just on the corner of uh, Portugal Street, just uh, next to the library. Definitely, you're all invited to join us. Um, um, but now, Sam, please come and come and tell us what your thoughts were after listening to this debate. Thanks. It's a bit of a difficult spot when the pub has already been announced and, and, and Martin is, uh, you know, raring to go for dinner. But basically, we've had a panel um, which should have been balanced between two tax people and two uh, sort of trade people. What we had, I guess, we did have. Uh, to tax people, we had one trade person and we had Neil who is basically anti-tax, which comes to the same thing. Although it's, it turns out that he is in favor of a vote uh, a ban on smoking, which, as, as Martin said, means he is in favor of infinite tax rates. So it's uh, probably slightly confusing what we've been doing up here. Um, sort of the key headings that, that uh, the debate uh, centered around was questions of certainty, um, taxes are certain, uh, permits are not, but there were arguments saying that uh, you know, actually the private sector finds out ways of, of creating certainty through hedging. Policymakers find ways of, of creating certainty by having safety walls and things like that. Perhaps the question was then more one of, uh, rather than uncertainty, about a low level of uh, of the price or the tax rather than a, a volatile tax. And that sort of led up to a, a second set of questions which had to do with um, which system is better to, to trigger innovation. Um, we've heard from Neil that the private sector is very good at leveraging money. Basically, the carbon value of a project can be leveraged by a factor 10 in, in project terms through gearing and, and, and other equity. And that sort of seems to be quite a strong argument for, for the private sector. Um, Martin rightly pointed out that there's no been ever an innovation that didn't involve the state, and therefore the state presumably has to have some income that comes out of it, and that for me was the third sort of heading through which the debate went, and the crucial one, who gets the money, really? Should the money, the value of the asset go to greedy city traders like the two specimens here on the <laughs> panel or should it go to the state which in its infinite wisdom would know what to do with it um, I didn't argue <laughs> that <laughs> I didn't argue um, that so those are the sort of questions that came up, uh, I haven't come to an answer um, Martin gave me a good idea, if, if you don't know why don't we put it up for a vote um, so think for about five seconds how you want to vote. Then I will ask you who is in favor of permits, who is in favor of taxes, and who doesn't 
still after two hours of debate, still does not know. <laughs> okay, so who's in favour of taxes then? <laughs> Both. Um, I feared that it's going to mess up our <laughs> vote, so I'm going to exclude that one. So who's, who's in favour of uh, who's in favour of taxes? Okay. Okay. So there's people slightly to the left, it turns out. Um, who, who's, who's in, who's in favour of uh, permits? People everywhere, it turns out. Probably more of them. Who doesn't know? Doesn't know is probably a proxy for I want both, I guess. But, uh, so I think what that sort of tells us is that the audience is going the same way as the, the real world seems to be going. on um, balance in favour of trading, but probably with, with sort of a strong soft spot for, for taxation for we certain areas. can see attractive areas. job opportunities opening up. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably what it is. Cynicism is always a good thing. Um, but let's, let's uh, close on, on that note. Thank you. Thank you.